Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Ecclesiastes 8. You'll need a Bible to follow along this morning, so these brothers have some. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you that's marked for you at Ecclesiastes chapter 8. For many Christians, our purpose on earth is about only one thing, and that is to determine whether or not we're going to go to heaven. But as I've said many times over the years, for those who belong to Christ, that question was answered the moment that you were born again. So we already know we're going to heaven. So that then does raise the question, then why has God left us here? If it's not to answer whether we're going to heaven, then why? The Bible says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Another way of saying this is God has already given me everything I need for life and godliness. Author Paul Tripp comments on this verse. He says, now I want to nitpick over the two words life and godliness. If Peter had only written, God has given me everything I need for life. He says, we would tend to add in the word eternal and say, of course, I know this. God has given me everything I need so that someday I'll have eternal life. But that's not what Peter is talking about. Peter is talking about the here and now. Which is why he uses the term godliness. What is godliness? It is a God-honoring life between the time I come to Christ and the time I go home to be with him. And Christ has already given me everything I need for it. Yes, we face the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. And yes, we still struggle with indwelling sin. But because of my relationship with Christ... I have been given a warrior spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. He fights on my behalf and enables me to produce good fruit, such as Peter mentions in that very chapter, fruit like faith and virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. That passage then in 2 Peter is describing the here and now benefits of our salvation. It's not enough for us to believe in life after death. We need to start believing in life before death. If we understand our identity that we've been given in Christ, we can live filled with hope and courage. Because Christ has not just forgiven you. He has completely and fundamentally changed who you are. And because of that, you can live in a very new and different way. And if you remember that, In your marriage. If you remember that in your job. If you remember that as you face the situations and relationships of life. It will make a tremendous difference in the way that you live. You'll begin to produce new and surprising fruit. And you'll be used by God to help others remember their identity. Now today as we continue in our series In the book of Ecclesiastes, titled How to Find Meaning in a Meaningless World, we're going to see how we are called to live in the here and now for God's glory. So let's ask him to help us as we do. 
Father, thank you for bringing us here. You're the one who has brought us together. Because it's your sovereign control, working through providence, using all of the secondary and tertiary, all of the events of this past week, to bring those together, to conspire together for this good thing, so that we're here. In your presence, with our Bibles open before you. Help us to have hearts that are open like our Bibles. Help us to focus our minds on the scripture at hand. And help us to desire to take away from this time together ways that we can be changed. Changed into the image of Jesus. So that we please you with our lips and our lives this coming week. In short, so that we bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, Ecclesiastes is one of five books in your Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, that are called the wisdom books. And wisdom in Scripture is applied knowledge. It's not just information. It's not just data. It's not just knowing things, but rather it's taking what you know and making application of it. It's using what you know to the ends that God designed it. And Christians have access to this wisdom, the Bible teaches us. James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, and it will be given to him. So as Christians, we have access to this skill to apply the knowledge that God gives us in his word to our daily living. We're going to see then some aspects of that wisdom from Ecclesiastes 8 and 9. But first, in your outline. The outline that was inserted in your program. If you don't have that out, I encourage you to take that out now. And I say there, even so, even though Christians have access to this wisdom, we need to understand first its limitations. And so I say there, wisdom cannot predict the future. Wisdom cannot predict the future. Verse 16 of chapter 8. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night. Then verse 17, I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Now verse 16 is a picture of People who are worried. They're busy with their work, but they're often sleepless, probably from worry over what they don't know. In particular, what they don't know about what's going to happen that's out of their control. And verse 17 equates, quote, what God has done with what goes on under the sun. It's saying that what happens under the sun is in God's control but not always in ours. What's going to happen, God knows, but we do not. And then this causes us to worry. And even the wisdom that God promises to his people who ask is only about applying what we know to the circumstances of the day. Christians cannot know what tomorrow brings in terms of its details. God in Scripture has given a glimpse of the future in predictive prophecy. But the details of your life and of my life are known only in the mind of God. 
So we should not live as though we know what's going to happen. We should live in a conscious dependence on the God who does. And James warns us about that. James chapter 4, he said, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Do you see he's saying a regular reminder that I don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Even though I'm a Christian and even though I have access to the wisdom of God, the skill of applying his knowledge, I still don't know what tomorrow will bring. Often when I'm setting an appointment with someone by email, which is my preferred form of communication, in case you're wondering, if you send me a text, you may never get a reply. And someone asked to meet, and then we go back and forth, and then I say, okay, well, then I'll see you on that date and that time, and then I almost always add, Lord willing. And the reason I do that is because of what James says. To remind myself that I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't control what's going to happen. And my life is in the hands of my good God. First Corinthians chapter 8 says, Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. And many of us boast of things that we are going to do and that we say we know, but in fact, we don't. I'm not sure who first said it. It's been variously attributed to Will Rogers and Mark Twain and other people. But someone said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And that's true for many of us. True wisdom cannot be had by searching under the sun. And confessing our ignorance is the first step toward that true wisdom. So wisdom cannot predict the future. But I say secondly in your outline. Wisdom can prepare for the future. It cannot predict it, but it can prepare for it. And it can do so by understanding three things that I say in your outline. First is that our lives belong to God. Verse 1 of chapter 9. So I reflected on all this and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. We can prepare for the unknown future by entrusting it to the God who does know that future. Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, says he does not know how he'll be remembered. Whether his reign as king will be looked back upon with fondness and adoration or with disdain and contempt. But either way, both the present and the future are, in the words of verse 1 of chapter 9, in God's hands. The idea that our lives are in the sovereign ownership of God is a foundational idea that goes back to the very beginning of human history and our creation by God the Creator. He who creates owns. The one who creates the person or thing owns that person or thing. And that's why the doctrine of creation is so hated and people concoct, frankly, foolish theories to debunk it. Make no mistake, it's not because of the evidence. 
It's because of where the evidence points, and that is to a creator and therefore our ownership by that creator, which we as sinful people chafe against. We can prepare for the future by living in joyful dependence on the God who is in sovereign control of our lives. The God who does things we don't understand teaches us in Scripture that though you don't understand it, I want you to know that whatever I, God, do, in the end it works out for the good of those who love me. So we can prepare for the future by remembering that our lives belong to God. And also in your outline, by remembering that our days, our lives are brief. Our lives are short, they're brief. Verse 2 of chapter 9. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. Now this is talking about the inevitability of death for every person. And in Scripture, that inevitability should cause us to consider and cherish the relatively few days that we have. In another one of those wisdom books, the book of Psalms, most of those Psalms, most of you know, were written by David. Exactly one of those Psalms was written by Moses. Psalm number 90 was written by Moses. Toward the end of his life, as he looks back and he thinks about all of the death that Moses had seen. I did a calculation on how many people the Bible records died during the lifetime of Moses. And he had three to four people on average dying every 15 minutes. In Psalm number 90, he looks back on that. And he says, you turn men back to dust, saying... Return to dust, O sons of men. And because of that inevitable destiny for everyone, he gives the key verse in that entire 17-verse psalm in verse number 12. And he says, Teach us then to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That is, since I don't have many days, since death is going to come, then teach me to number them and make them count. Every day. And Moses then provided a fascinating picture of how very short our lives really are. In that psalm, he says, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. This psalm says that from God's perspective, a thousand years is like a single day. Now, when we consider the length of our lives in light of that, it shows how extremely brief is our time on earth. Consider, if someone lives an extraordinarily long life, he might reach a hundred years or one-tenth of one thousand. One-tenth of one day is about two and a half hours. Moses is saying that from God's perspective, our lives are like two and a half hours. Ah, but it's worse than that. He goes on to compare our lives to a watch in the night. In that culture, watchmen worked in shifts to guard the city gates from being attacked. And the typical watchman's shift was three hours. But remember, our lives are no more than one-tenth of that. 
about 18 minutes. Andy Warhol said, everyone gets his 15 minutes of fame. Moses said, everyone gets his 15 minutes of life. But it's worse than that. Because it gives a third metaphor in that in that psalm for the brevity of human life, which puts in mind the really momentary nature of our existence. Verse 5 of that psalm says, You sweep men away in the sleep of death. And the word that's translated sweep is sometimes translated wash, and it pictures a tide washing on shore. Most of us have had the experience of standing on the ocean shore and watching the tide ebb and flow. And on the shore, at one moment, there's sand and seaweed and pebbles and seashells and so on. And after the wash of the tide, then just one wash gives you new sand and new seaweed and new pebbles and new seashells. And so it is with each generation, which from an eternal perspective is here one moment and then gone the next. And why is it that our lives are relatively short and will end in death? The last part of verse 3 in Ecclesiastes 9. The hearts of people are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. So why is it that we have this inevitable rendezvous with death? Why is it that our lives are relatively brief? The Bible teaches it's because sin is characteristic of all of us. We are born with a sin nature. The wages of sin is death. Now, you might be willing to grant that we're sinners and death is the lot of all because of sin. But to say that while we live, we're mad... That's what this verse says. Mentally deranged. What do you think about that? Well, you know, sin is stupid to the point of being crazy. You can quote me on that. Sin is stupid to the point of being crazy. You've heard the definition of insanity as doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Isn't that what we do with our besetting sins? Just continue to indulge them, knowing the outcomes, feeling guilty about it, but continuing to indulge it? It's madness. It's spiritual insanity. To prepare for the future, we need to remember that our lives belong to God. We need to remember that those lives are brief. And I say in your outline... Despite all of that, though, we need to remember our lives are good. Our lives are good. Because verse 4 says, anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now, we sometimes say when asked how we're doing something like, I'm breathing, that's better than the alternative. Well, that's certainly true from the perspective of life under the sun, Not really from the perspective of life above the sun, because to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. But from the perspective limited to under the sun, that's certainly true. That breathing now is better than the alternative, because as long as we're still alive, there's hope to get it right. There's hope for a spiritual conversion. Solomon here speaks of a live dog. 
is better off than a dead lion. In his day, there was no such thing as a house dog as a pet. They did not have dogs as domesticated animals. They were vicious mongrels that roamed the countryside in packs. They were hated. They were viewed as unclean and they were at the very bottom of the animal kingdom. For some of us, that's still the case. Let me continue. So here we're given two opposites. The most disrespected animal, the dog, and the most respected animal, the lion. And he says a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Why is that? Because as long as there is life, there's hope. Verse 5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Even if all you know is that somewhere out there you will be put in a grave, the very fact that you can know that makes you better off than the dead. Because it gives that hope that that might inspire change then. Might inspire to number your days aright. Last part of verse 5 says, They have no further reward, the dead, and even their name is forgotten. Verse 6, Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Now this is not trying to contrast life with the afterlife. It's talking about life in the here and now. Solomon is saying that those who have died have ceased to contribute to life under the sun. Therefore, it's better to live. Whatever life is like, whatever your life is like, it is good, at least in a relative sense, because of a doctrine that we call common grace. You'll learn about that in Master Plan for Life, which is our second hour. And if you're not in the habit of staying for second hour, I encourage you to do that. And we'll give you a notebook and we'll go through these great doctrines together. And one of those is common grace. God has bestowed his goodness on all people, the believer and non-believer alike. Because if we received what we deserved, there would be only death and separation from God. And so our lives are good. The fact that we're breathing, the fact that there is time to change the road that we are on, the path that we are taking. And that's true for all people in God's common grace. So wisdom cannot predict the future. It can prepare for it. And I say in your outline, wisdom can have pleasure in the present. Cannot predict the future, can prepare for it, and it can have pleasure in the present. I say in the outline that we can enjoy The things that God gives us. We can have pleasure in the present by enjoying the things that God gives us. Verse 7. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. One preacher has explained that this way. I can't help but think what a contrast life was in Solomon's day to our hectic, fast-paced, chosen lifestyle. Our lives are characterized by fast food and a full schedule. But in Solomon's day, the average Jewish family began the day with a light snack to get them going as they went out into the day. Along the way, as they worked or were in the marketplace, they would have a light meal, like what we would call a a brunch, sometime between 10 a.m. and noon. But the significant meal of the day was reserved for the evening time when the family would return home. Just after sunset, they would recline around a low table. 
Often this meal was simple. They would have bread. They might have cheese. They would have a few vegetables or fruit in season. Meat was a rarity. Often there would be fish. And around this simple fare, they would recline as a family and they would share what had taken place during the day and they would rejoice in the accomplishments of that day. It wasn't hasty. It was a time of lingering together. Sounds nice, doesn't it? The word of God tells us that Solomon sat down daily to a feast. It was Thanksgiving every day in the palace. And yet there's evidence that Solomon could not enjoy the festive realities that took place from day to day. In fact, that lack of enjoyment is probably reflected in the Proverbs that Solomon wrote. He wrote much of what we call the book of Proverbs. And in it, he said things like this, Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. He said as well, Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. The evening meal was not just a time for eating, but for fellowship and cultivating the relationships within the household. So verse 7 is telling us to enjoy our meals. It's not then just talking about developing a palate for food. It's talking about establishing and maintaining and pursuing relationships. Enjoy the things that God has given us, but enjoy those things for a larger purpose. The food for a larger purpose. And that is our relationships with others. In your New Testament, Paul warned young Timothy of the allure of riches and how some have abandoned the faith because they've pursued wealth and money. But he says, we can't use the things that God has given as long as they are used by his design. He says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We can enjoy the things God gives us. And I say in your outline, we can enjoy the days that God gives us. Verse 8, always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. What's that all about? He's talking about wearing bright, festive clothing. The reference to anointing your head with oil is probably a reference to perfume or cologne. Perfume was often reserved for festive occasions. The Jews in Solomon's day worked hard. There was little time for pursuing pleasures. But when they took a break from the rigors of their work, then they knew how to have a good time. Weddings were festive occasions. They would break out their white clothing. They would put on their best perfume. And here Solomon says to make every day like that, a festive occasion. Now, he's not advocating that we turn into party animals. He's suggesting that we need to make it a practice to identify the pleasures that God gives every day. He gives us the pleasure found in the smile of a child, in the beauty of his creation, in the encouragement of a friend. The Bible tells us that no matter what the situation we are in, we can, Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. That's Solomon's point. We can enjoy the things that God gives us. We can enjoy the days that God gives us. And we can enjoy the people 
that he gives us. Verse 9. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. You may not understand, he's saying, because that word meaningless, hevel, is a Hebrew word that's used throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. One way to think of it is as puzzling. I can't figure it out. I can't put it all together. We may not understand what God is doing, but enjoy life with your spouse and by extension with others that God gives you in relationship. Now, we know some things about Solomon's life. The Bible tells us that Solomon had a thousand women. He sinned greatly. I believe that Ecclesiastes was written near the end of his life. And here we have counsel from one who has seen the other side. It's as if Solomon's saying, do not do what I have done. Savor the days that you have with your spouse. Love the wife or husband of your youth. He saw a wife as a gift from God. He saw marriage as a loving commitment that lasts a lifetime. And no matter how difficult life may be, there's great joy in the home of the man and the woman who love each other and are faithful to their marriage vows. Enjoy your marriage, he says. We can enjoy the things, the days, and the people that God gives us. And lastly, we can enjoy the work that God gives Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. That is, when we die, we cease to participate in what God is doing under the sun. So between now and that uncertain event in the future, work with all your might. Now, Some say that whatever your hand finds to do at the beginning of verse 10 refers to our hobbies as well. I really don't think that Solomon had in mind frivolity or activities that are basically meaningless. Over and over in the other refrains, we found that Solomon focuses on our work. We're to go after our work with great gusto. What we have here is the Old Testament expression of a truth with which the New Testament challenges us. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15 in your New Testament says, make the most of every opportunity. That is, buy back the opportunities from that which is of lesser value. Redeem the time, says the King James Version. From the New Testament perspective, it's our responsibility to make sure that every aspect of life is pursued with diligence to contribute to the work of the Lord. Our recreation is to be viewed from the perspective of the work of the Lord. We recharge our batteries so that we can pursue our work for the Lord with all of our might. So some people say we work to play. But really, from a Christian perspective, it's the other way around. We play, we recreate, we rest in order to work, in order to pursue the Lord's purpose. So our businesses, our jobs, they're means of furthering the cause of Christ. So we do it with all of our might. We work as unto the Lord. 
So here's a paraphrase of Solomon. In all of this, he's saying you've only got one shot. You've got one life. You've got one shot, so make it count. Now, that's not dreary. It's a wonderful testimony of God's grace that he has given us an opportunity to put our hands to the work that he has given us to do, and we can do it with all of our might for his glory. There's great joy in living a life like that. In looking at every aspect of your life and saying, how does this contribute to the mission to which God has called us to pursue together? And if it doesn't contribute, then to minimize it or rid yourself of it. And thereby to prioritize the things you do and the way you do them and the amount of time that's allocated to them. Based upon whether or not they achieve the purpose that God has given them for. That's wisdom. Applying what we know, what we know about the mission that God has given us to the circumstances at hand. So only one life. And it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. And so your take-home truth is this. When we entrust the future to God, we can enjoy the present for God. I don't know what the future holds, but I can entrust that to God. And when I do that, now I can enjoy the present as I pursue the mission that he's assigned to me. And I can enjoy it for him and for his glory. Now that's only true for people who know God. That's only true for people who have been converted. And in Ecclesiastes 9 it says, as long as there is life, that's better than death. Because there's still hope for that conversion. Many of you here know the Lord Jesus. You've given your life to him. But for many of us, we've given our life to him only as an insurance policy for the next life. Not as our map for how to live this life. But God has left us here for purposes like we have laid out. For those who have never come to Christ, you can do that when we pray in just a moment. You can acknowledge that you are a sinner. Realize that you are a sinner. That in your own way, and we all sin differently, but all of us do. We have all used what God has given for our own purposes. You're a sinner. Recognize, though, that Christ died for your sin. He paid the penalty that belonged to you. And it is through his perfect life and his death on the cross that you can be reconciled to the God against whom you have sinned. Repent of your sin. I'm going to go your way, God, not my way. It's a change of mind. Literally, repentance means a change of mind, but it's a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I go in a new direction. When we bow in just a moment, you can receive Jesus Christ into your life. From your heart to him in your own words, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I ask you to forgive me and I want to follow you with my life. I ask you to take my life and use it for your glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and to consider the significance of our lives. 
We are creatures, but special creatures. The only group among your creation that is made in the image of God. We were designed to reflect you back to you, but our sin has cracked the mirrors that were to reflect your character. And Lord, it is in the Lord Jesus Christ that those mirrors are repaired. We thank you for his perfect life. We thank you for his sacrificial death. And that conversion that occurs when we come to him, believing who he is and what he has done, is meant to have effects not only for the life to come, but for the here and now. And so I pray that would be so for my brothers and sisters, that they would see their lives, they would see Monday through the lens of Sunday. And I pray for any who came into this room who did not have a relationship with you, that now you are moving upon their hearts and drawing them to yourself. We ask you to grant them salvation as you have graciously given to us and begin changing them from the inside out so that their lips and lives are now turned to bringing glory to you rather than for themselves. And we will give you the praise for all you accomplish. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.